As we come now to the scripture, let me ask you, uh, please, uh, to pray with me. Father in heaven, this is indeed the very word of God. Um, How kind of you to speak so clearly to us. How kind of you to preserve this word written so that even those of us generations after it was first read and written that we would have as well so that we would be able to know you as even those in that first generation of churches knew you. And so, Father, we pray that we would tend to it well, that we would listen worthy of the Scripture, the Word of God, and that you would use it in our lives to bless, to transform, to save, to encourage, to exhort, to direct. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, please, to 1 Thessalonians and chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, please. I just want to read. Well, I'll read the first eight verses, but we won't get that far. 1 Thessalonians and chapter 4, please. Hear the word of God. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you're doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this manner, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now, Paul begins here, sort of a new section of this letter. It begins with the word finally. Now, Paul is using this word finally as a preacher uses this word finally. All right? He doesn't at all mean I'm about to finish. Right? Because he still has another third, almost half to go yet. So, just by way of, you know, just helping you. When you hear finally... It doesn't mean the end almost. It means that now finally I can get to what I've been wanting to get to because I had to tell you all of that before I could get here. So now that I've told you all that, finally or now I can, I can give you, I can apply it. I can tell you, tell you what it's, what I want to do with this. And so that's where Paul is now because you remember what he has been telling them first of all is that he's thankful to God for them for their faith, for their, 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 their love, and, and their, the hope that they have, the steadfastness that they have. He's thanking God for that. But he's also a bit concerned for them. He's concerned for them because of the opposition that's come their way. 
And so not only is he thankful for them, all these great things that he's seeing in their, in their life of faith and so forth, but he's concerned about their perseverance, about their being able to continue on in the faith. And so that's why he said to them, so I want to come to you so I can supply what's lacking, so I can teach you some more, so I can help you some more, so I can encourage you some more to make sure you persevere. And he has a great heart, as he prayed as well, that their love would increase even more than it has been. Their love would increase more and more because what he wants from God is that God would establish their hearts blameless in holiness so that when Jesus returns, there'll be no question that they belong to him. He wants God to establish their hearts, that is, make so permanent this love of Christ within them that it's part of their very DNA, if you will. It's part of who they would establish. And what he wants to establish, their hearts, not just external, but internal, transform inside where we live, who we are, to establish their hearts blameless in holiness. That is to say that no one would question that they've been set apart by God. As his. So that's his hope. So he says, now finally, now you know, I've laid my cards on the table. What I really desire for you is that your hearts be blameless in holiness. So now I've, I've told you that. Now, now here's my command. Here's my instruction to you concerning that. So verse 1, he says, then brothers, we ask and urge you. You can feel the intensity. I ask you. He didn't have a little backspace. He could just say, oh, no. No. so he says, okay, I'll ask. That's fine. But, but it's, it's more than that. It's urging you. You can feel it in the, even the word in English. Urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us, I'm not telling you anything new. I've told you this before. But, but Timothy's come back and, and I've heard some things. So I want to urge you now, uh, these things I've told you before, how you ought to walk and to please God just as you're doing that. And, and you do so more and more. I told you to do it, you're doing it. But, but really, you might think you've arrived, but you haven't arrived. You need to do this more and more. Now, he's already told them, they use this expression, how they ought to walk. Remember chapter 2, verse 12. He says, when he exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you, that is, a, I'm standing as the witness that you know this, and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, fitting for who God is, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. He calls you into his glorious kingdom. That is, there is a kingdom, there is a king, a ruler, one to whom we must submit. But it's a glorious kingdom. Submitting to this kingdom means you're submitting to the one who is most wise. You're submitting to the one who is most powerful. You're submitting to the one who is perfectly good. That's what makes it a glorious kingdom. There couldn't be any better kingdom in which to be because it's this glorious kingdom of God. So walk worthy of being part of that kingdom, submitting to that king. How would you submit to a king like that? You would submit to a king like that utterly, completely. So he says, I've already told you how you ought to walk. And and now I'm going to put it like this. The way that you walk is to please God. Now he'll go on in verse 3. And he'll talk about what that means. He says, for the will of God, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. 
your holiness. He's already said, this is how I want you to be established. I want God to establish, make part of your very DNA, who you are. Your heart, blameless. Nobody can make a charge against you. In holiness. How do you walk to please the Lord? You walk holy before him. Verse 7, he says, For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. So what he's going to do here is talk about various aspects of holiness. And he's going to talk first about sexual intimacy. And then he's going to talk, interesting, about love and work. And then he's going to talk about how we grieve. So what is holy in regards to sexual intimacy? What's holy in regards to work? What's holy in regards to how we grieve? Now, he can have endless topics. The whole Bible's full of them. But, but, but here to this church, thus to us in these weeks, it's those topics. I'll get beginning with that next week. But this idea, how you ought to walk. Let me read from you from a Australian commentator named Leon Morris. I, I like quite a lot. He's not dead yet. Nor do I wish it upon him. But he is old. Even, dare I say, older than me. He says, there is nothing new in all this, as Paul makes, as Paul is at pains to make clear. He told them to live this way at the time of his mission among them, that is, as you receive from us. And he is not now introducing some novelty. He had told them that they ought to behave in the fashion outlined. And the word is a strong one. It is usually translated, must And it brings before us the compelling necessity under which Christians lie. When a man is saved by the work of Christ, for him it does not lie open before him as a matter for his completely free decision whether he'll serve God or not. He's been bought with a price. He has become the slave of Christ. Christian service, we would probably say obedience. Christian service is not an optional extra for, like, for those who like doing that kind of thing. It's a compelling obligation which lies upon each of the redeemed. There's a book with a great title. It was written in the 17th century, in 1611. It was written by a man by the name of Lewis Bailey. It went through 72 editions and was still published 100 years after its first uh, publication. And, and the title of this book is this. The Practice of Piety. Really better, the subtitle is what helps us. The Practice of Piety. Directing a Christian how to walk that he might please God. Right? That's what it means. We're going to walk worthy of the Lord. We're going to live as those who desire to and who actually do please God. See, that's really God's goal, God's purpose for making and saving us. For instance, in Ephesians in chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. That's why he saved us. Now, of course, this holiness, this blamelessness is given to us as a gift in Christ. His righteousness to us. But then, we must live that out. In chapter 5 of Ephesians, even as Paul's talking about husbands and wives, we know he's really talking about Christ and the church. So he compares the love of a husband to that of Christ. And he speaks then, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, that is Christ, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. See, we're the very bride of Christ. And he desires a bride who's pure. And to present us to himself just as that. Holy holy and blameless. That's why Paul would write, this is the will of God, your sanctification. That's why he would pronounce as a benediction at the very end, chapter 5, verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Then that benediction that I often use, that benediction that hangs even above our mantle at home. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, from falling, and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory without, with great joy. To only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority before all time and now and evermore. You see, we're to be holy and blameless. A few years ago, Jerry Bridges sent me a book. He sends me all his books. I send him all mine. It's a great relationship we have. Keeps me busier. But this, he just has a chapter in this book. It's about holiness. It's a, it's a, uh, actually, it's written in honor of R.C. Sproul, but it's about John Calvin's works. And so they always ask Jerry, because you know him, we know him as a man who is holy. They always ask him to write about holiness. So he writes this. He says, holiness consists in conformity to Christ. Calvin writes, he's pretty much obliged to quote Calvin in a book about him. Calvin writes, because the Father has reconciled us to himself in Christ, therefore he commands us to be conformed to Christ as to our pattern. Indeed, he continues, says Calvin again, unless we ardently and prayerfully devote ourselves to Christ's righteousness, we do not only faithlessly revolt from our Creator, but we also abjure Him as our Savior. And you're thinking, I don't use the word ardently or abjure very often. So Jerry says this. This is strong language. The word ardently conveys the idea of eager zealousness, or as we might say today, going all out or giving 100%. 
unless you're an athlete in America, then you give 110%. Athletes don't take math. The word abjure means to renounce strongly, as in Peter's third denial of the Lord, when he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. Calvin leaves no room for middle ground. Either we ardently pursue the example of Christ, or else we strongly renounce him by our conduct and lifestyle. How different this standard is from the attitude of so many of today's Christians who are quite casual or half-hearted in their pursuit of Christ-likeness. But from Calvin's matter-of-fact writing style, it's clear that he regards a zealous pursuit of holiness as the normal Christian life. And you see, but, but, but doesn't there this emphasis on on, on holiness and obedience. It doesn't that sort of negate the whole concept of saved by grace through faith? I mean, I mean isn't that, isn't that our, our, our mantra really? That it's not by our works, but by Christ's. And, and we've been forgiven. And so we're saved by grace, free gift of God. It comes by faith, not by our works. And of course, the answer to that is no, it doesn't negate it at all. It's part and parcel of it. You see, the biblical logic goes like this. When a person becomes a believer, when a person becomes a Christian, when a person comes to faith, what is true then of that person is this. And that person says, my problem is sin. Uh, Sin is my problem. And sin is me living to please myself or to please someone else, or maybe even to please God as I think he is, but really isn't. That's my sin. It's rebelling against the truth of God, rebelling against God. And I realize that that's my problem. In fact, I realize that's the problem in the whole world. That's the cause of all misery, ultimately in my life and in the lives of others. And so... What I'm doing is I'm renouncing that. I'm saying that's the wrong way to be. That's the wrong way to live. To live there will only bring misery and death. I realize that. I want to be free from that. But I can't be. Oh, there's Christ. He frees me from it. He frees me from the penalty of it, right? But he also frees me from the power of it from the enslavement to it. Both of those pieces are good news. Both of those belong to the gospel. Freedom from its penalty forgiven, but also freedom from its enslavement. Because you see, if I were only freed from its penalty in this life, but then stuck in it for the rest of my life, what a miserable, semi-miserable, oh, I'd have the hope that a day's going to come when, but, 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 but there's nothing I could do about it now, it'd be miserable. He says, no, there, there is. Because you see, I've, I've, I've saved you from the enslavement of it. The way that's laid out is in one particular, to many places, but one particular chapter in particular, in Romans chapter 6. Let me walk us through this. This is thrilling. Listen. Paul's just set up the whole case of being saved by grace through faith. Justified by grace completely through faith alone in the work of Christ 
and nothing else. So then he asked the question about holiness, really, about living to please the Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Does it really matter, you see, about how we live? You've just said, Paul, it isn't by our works, so I guess we can just sin. And Paul says, that's silly, right? By no means is how he puts it more eloquently. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. He said, baptism, just like circumcision, doesn't save. But what it means is this. It is a dying to sin and a rising to Christ. If you've been baptized, he says, then live like that. Baptized as an infant. Believe and live like that. Been baptized on profession of faith. Believe and live like that. Understand, that's what happened. When Christ died, you died. When Christ rose, you rose. And now you see there's newness. Of life, there really is. That's right. Jeremiah meant when he said, "God will write His law upon your hearts." It's a change of heart, newness of life, a whole new inclination to life. Died and risen, and that rising. There's a whole new inclination. It means to be born again. And you say, "I don't always feel that." It's true. It's really true. For he says. If we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like him, like his. We know that our old self, before born again, was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. See, the power of it really has been broken. It's still present. The day will come when the the presence, there'll be no presence of sin at all. The penalty taken, the power broken. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we've died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. He says, this is how you're to think about yourself. No matter what it feels like at any given moment in time, no matter what it looks like at any given moment in time, this is how you're to think because this is really True. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. You see, when you hear that, that should throw your soul. Really? I don't have to let sin rule my body? I don't have to follow these passions that I really? There is hope for me? There is help for me? He says, oh yes. Not only have you been forgiven, but you have this Holy Spirit within you. To help you in this new heart within you, you see. 
Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life, your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law, but under grace. Not under law in the sense that it no longer stands there to condemn you. Because it already did that. It already condemned you in Christ. He took it. So now you're free from that condemnation. Not only that, you are free from the hold that it had over you to think, I must live like this the rest of my days. Now you're free because grace has come. This grace that saves, this grace that forgives, this grace that empowers. So then he goes on, what what then? Are we to sin because we're not under the law but under grace? Again, he says, that's silly, right? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, your slaves are the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you, were, that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. You see, the evidence, two pieces of evidence that you've been set free. One is, you believe. That power of sin was broken. Second piece of evidence, you get it when you desire to please God. I'm speaking in human terms, thanks Paul, because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification, leading to holiness. What's the will of God for us? Our sanctification. What's Paul praying that their hearts would be established and made permanent, their very DNA of their life, blameless in holiness. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Well, yes, in one sense, you you didn't desire at all to be righteous. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? And maybe we should think about this. When you were living unrighteousness, what was the fruit from that? The answer is shame. So do you really want to live there? Isn't it good news to hear you don't have to live there? Isn't it good news you don't have to be involved in those things anymore and feel that shame and know that and be ashamed of those things? All that brought you was being ashamed. Come on. You see, live holy. For the end of those things is death. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. That's what sin leads to. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This eternal life, you see, it's freed from its penalty, freed from its power, and one day freed from its presence a couple of decades or so ago there was this controversy it was called in the church 
And I never understood it. Or at least I never understood what the point was. I never understood why people were arguing the side they were. I want to say it's heretical what they were arguing. But, But frankly, there were people, faithful believers who held the position that I thought was heretical. And so I'm just assuming there must be something I don't understand about what they were saying. But, 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 the, but the whole context is called the lordship controversy. And, and there were some who were saying that you can accept, you can receive Jesus as your savior, but not as your lord. Now, I, I think the point that they're trying to make was this, that, that we experience sometimes this two-stepped situation where we come to realize our sin and we come to realize that Jesus has died for us and we come to, to, to realize that he's the Savior and so we believe and so our sins are forgiven. But we, we just don't know quite. And we haven't thought it through. No one's told us that what this now means is that not only has the penalty been broken, but also the power. And he really is the Lord and so follow him. And, and, and so I understand that. But, but the truth of the matter is that he is both. You don't get a half of Jesus. You don't want a half of Jesus. If he is the Savior, he must be the Lord because he's only Savior because he can break the power of sin and death. Because he has authority over that. And it's a blessing that he's the Lord. It isn't a burden. You know, First John chapter 5, he says, the commands of the Lord aren't burdensome. He had to say that because sometimes they feel burdensome. But they're not really because they lead to life. It's good, these commands of the Lord. It shouldn't be a burden for us. We should look at them as saying, oh, this is that glorious kingdom. And and these commands lead to life. They should be my joy. Tell me, God, what to do. You see. And this isn't legalism, because legalism means I'm trying to do so that I'll be accepted. This isn't moralism, which just says that all that matters is that you're a good person and do good things. That isn't it either. Because you see, this says, I'm a sinner with a hope that Christ has come. And he's freed me. It's interesting, isn't it, that, that when that I read the Ten Commandments to us this morning early, and you know how that begins. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And what's God mean by that? You were slaves before. Now I'm giving you this law to make you free. And we have Jesus who makes us free. John Stott, in, in his commentary on this particular passage, says, first of all, this is a radical concept. It goes to the very roots of our discipleship. And it asks us the question, do you really believe that Christ has paid the penalty and broken? Do you really believe? Does your life really say, yes, I really believe? And he says, not only that, but it's a freeing concept. It frees us from this legalism, this Phariseeism, you see. Because it, it moves us to the law, but then even past it, to the giver of the law, and says, I want to obey because I love him. There's a story the preachers always tell at this point, so I'll tell it. It goes like this. as a boy, and he has a number of friends who are trying to cajole him into doing something that would be bad to do. I don't know what that would be. Steal a car, break a window, whatever it would be. They're trying to cajole him to, 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 to do that which is, which is wrong to do. And he keeps saying no. And so they, they call him names, you know. 
to try to get him to do it. And then finally one of the boys says, oh, you're just afraid of what your father would do to you if you did this. And he said, no. I'm not afraid of what my father would do if I did this act. I'm afraid of what this act would do to my father. And that's living to please. And then Stott says this is progressive because Paul says to them, I want you to do this more and more. You see, that keeps us from this pharisaicalism, this, this legalism. Because he says, no, 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 it, it, it's bigger, it's more than you could ever imagine. I mean, it keeps going on. You, you will grow and grow and grow. It's always your heart's desire to please him more and more and more. And of course, it began, we know, all of this in Christ. His righteousness for us, that great exchange. We give him our sin and he gives us his righteousness. Amazing. And then that very righteousness, that very holiness that he gives us, he then works in us. And thus on the night that he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took bread after giving thanks. He gave it to his disciples and he said, here's where it starts. Here's where your holiness starts. This is my body, which is given for you. And in the same way, he took the cup. And after giving thanks, he gave this to his disciples and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And the apostle adds, as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes because you see, this is where our holiness begins. It begins when he takes the penalty it begins when he breaks the power. And that he did. And he says, so we've died with him. We've risen with him. Now let's live, really live free to please him. And that, he says, is life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray for me, for us. We believe that. That no matter what has happened to this moment, that we believe that. Sins forgiven. Bondage broken. Life to be lived. Free to follow Christ and to please God. Lord, I pray that you take this bread, this juice, set it apart in such a way that we know that we're in the very presence of this one who's died for us, who lives for us. This very one who paid the penalty, this very one who broke sin's power. And this very one is with us. And just as this bread and juice will be in us, even 
our Lord Jesus, by his spirit, lives within us the very holiness of God. So, Father, I pray that you would enable us to walk as we ought to please God. And this I pray in Jesus' name.